Are you planning to divorce an addicted spouse? Today's podcast addresses addiction itself, including what it is and its telltale signs. You'll learn from former addict Dr. Jeremy Frank, turned psychologist, and stories of his clients, including two brave women who got the courage to do it. You'll understand what feelings you should expect now that you are splitting for good. And you'll also learn some of the steps you can take now to feel supported and protected to keep you moving in a positive direction. This is Sharon Pastore, and you're listening to the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Let's move forward. You're listening to the Healthy Divorce Podcast. Join us as we help you navigate your divorce without going broke, relationships in ruin, or ending up in court. You'll get into financial and emotional shape, make sense of the legal process, get strong enough to negotiate for yourself, be a mindful parent, stay amicable with your spouse so you can get a fresh start. Please welcome your host for this episode, Adina Laver, founder of Courage to be Curious and formerly Divorce Essentials. Start off by saying that as a divorce coach, this was a topic that I guess I've been sharing with my colleagues and saying, I really want to have a call on this topic because um, it was surprising to me and really overwhelming to hear how many people are really struggling on the other side of addiction. And that's any kind of addiction, as we'll hear soon, whether that be alcohol or drugs or sex addictions or just any kind of addictive behavior can be a really challenging place to live. And certainly, if someone's considering or navigating divorce, it can present its own challenges. And when so many people were presenting with this, I wanted to have a call that addressed it specifically. And the other piece of it is, as I started to work with clients around this issue, um, learning more about the organization Al-Anon, which provides support for family members who are living with and and coping with addiction on the other side. And actually, we have callers who are going to guests who are going to explain it much better than I am. But when I've had clients who come to me and said they've been to Al-Anon meetings and they've been attending for, whether it be a short while or a long while, how powerful that experience is. And I said, I absolutely want to be able to share that with our callers so that they can learn more about what opportunity, what additional opportunities are out there for very powerful support. So um, this call, the topic of this call feels really important to me, and I'm very grateful to our guests who are on today to share their expertise. So I do want to start off by introducing our guests a little bit so you know who's here. So we have Jeremy Frank, and Jeremy Frank is um, a therapist and an addictions counselor with a, a great deal of background. So Jeremy, I want to welcome you here and give you an opportunity to tell people a little bit about who you are and what your practice is around today. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to be here. I'm a psychologist and a certified addiction counselor in Philadelphia and the main line in Ballard Kingwood. And I focus um, mostly on addiction, drug and alcohol addiction. I see couples, individuals, and families. Great. Thank you. And we're also really fortunate to have two guests on today who um, are sharing their experience from having been through the divorce process and having navigated on the other side of addiction and who have also participated in Al-Anon and part of Al-Anon's sort of code of conduct is that 
conduct is that people remain fairly anonymous. So both these women have um, come on and are willing to share with us, but I'm going to introduce them by first name only so we can adhere to that code of conduct set by Al-Anon. But um, Carol, let me say welcome to you and, you know, give a little shout out and welcome and anything you want to say as we're starting off this call. Uh, hi, I'm Carol, and um, I have been um, a participant in Al-Anon for about 10 years, which was most of my time um, in my relationship with my um, alcoholic ex-husband. Great. Thank you, Carol. And Lynn, welcome to the call. How would you like to introduce yourself? Thank you. I'm happy to be here. My name's Lynn, and I've been going to Al-Anon for about six years now, and uh, I've been divorced uh, longer than that. But um, Al-Anon's been very helpful to me. It's changed my life. All right. So I'm really glad to have both of you with us today. So we're going to do a little dialoguing back and forth, and I'm going to start off with Jeremy. And so, Jeremy, you know, talk to us a little bit about addiction and and what really is addiction and what are some of the signs? What does it look like as people are living on the other side of this? Sure. Uh, Also, I have personal experience. I'm a recovering addict myself of 23 years, so I may be able to offer some insight on the other side. Of addiction, but it's considered to be a biopsychosocial disease. Um, it's a chronic illness. It's something that doesn't ever go away, and it's characterized by repetitive. Um, some people like to think of it as obsessive compulsive patterns or behaviors that are repeated despite adverse consequences. And it can be drugs or alcohol. It could also be food, exercise, shopping gambling, and sex, or even relationship or love addiction. Primarily, it's drug and alcohol addiction. Um, It's characterized by impaired control, denial, not just denial that there's a problem, but often denial about about other aspects of oneself or one's life or what's going on in one's life, and um, preoccupation, and depending on what the addiction manifests and what somebody is using, um, tolerance or withdrawal, and as we know, it can have devastating impacts on couples and families. So, Jeremy, you said something in there. You said it doesn't ever go away. So can you say a little bit more of what you mean by that? So if you ask recovering people, um, whether they are addicts or alcoholics, they'll say, I'm a, I'm a recovering addict or alcoholic. I'm a recovering person as opposed to recovered and uh, the idea there is that it, it lies in weight. It's much like diabetes or um, congestive heart failure. These are diseases that, that uh, don't ever go away. They can be arrested. They can be treated. Um, they can be in remission. But someone's always at risk of having a flare-up later on in life. Mm. So it's the kind of thing that treatment really does need to be ongoing or managing it needs to be something that's ongoing because, as you said, these flare-ups can happen and and come back and recur. It doesn't go away. We don't take a pill or anything and make it go away. They can switch, and there's something called substitution where someone might have an addiction to alcohol and they address that, but later on they're smoking marijuana or um, they get addicted to pills, and and that needs to be um, carefully monitored. Right. 
So, I mean, as we talk more about Al-Anon, Al-Anon is for the other person, but just briefly here, what are some of the ways that people do start to manage? So if somebody comes to an awareness, what are some of the management tools for um, going into recover, entering recovery and staying in a, in a recovering or remission mode? Uh, well, treatment is an important part of managing anyone's addiction. So at the bedrock is individual psychotherapy once a week, twice a week, at least for a year or so, or possibly for several years, um, and bringing in a, a couple or a family to also get couples therapy or group therapy. Um, the social support of groups like uh, AA or NA, which is Narcotics Anonymous, GA, Gamblers Anonymous, there's actually 200 different 12-step programs, um, uh, which Al-Anon is, uh, is one of them. There's Naranon for people who um, are related to loved ones who abuse drugs or um, are, are addicts. Um, recovery can look like a lot of different things, um, but it involves social support. It involves therapy. Um, they say how it works. Uh, the acronym HOW stands for honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. So someone needs to genuinely look at who they are, what their life is like, and figure out what makes them tick. Um, the things that help someone actually achieve recovery tend to be a non-alcoholic or addiction substitute for drugs or alcohol, and then a lot of structure and, um, and finding usually something like spirituality, and that could be meaning, it can be purpose, um, something that give someone more of a reason to live. Great. So, Carol and Lynn, I want to engage you here, and then I'll come back to Jeremy around this, but, you know, what does it look like when you're living on the other side of someone who is struggling with an addiction, and how does it affect the relationship? So, you know, Carol, let's start with you. How did it manifest in your relationship, and um, how did it impact you? When I... um when I met my husband, um, he was in recovery, and um, he was going to AA. And, and um, at the time that I met him, I was going through a difficult period of my life, um, not drug-related or alcohol-related. I had uh, my my first husband had passed away, and I had met my husband, who was very spiritual and and very helpful to me, getting me um, moving on in my life. And as our um, relationship progressed, we made the decision to marry, and um, he had never been married before, so um, he ended up um, relapsing, and um, I had never encountered alcoholism in my life, so I really didn't recognize the signs of of um, what was happening and the first thing I did was call his sponsor and ask him what to do and he suggested Al-Anon um, and I attended my, my first meeting of Al-Anon which at the time did not really help me that much. I, I felt that um, my problem was unique and I really didn't... Um, I didn't get the program. I 
I just, I just didn't see how it was going to help me. But as so, Carol, I'm just going to jump in there before you share with us a piece about Al-Anon. What were some of the signs? What were the things that were happening that led you to call his sponsor? So, what were some of the kind of patterns that you were noticing? Well, actually, not knowing anything about alcoholism, I didn't really see any patterns at all. And mm-hmm. um, and then I came home one one night, and he was just really, really drunk. And, oh, okay. you know, that was just an obvious sign. But in retrospect, um, when he relapsed on other occasions, I began to recognize signs that a, a relapse was coming or he was in the middle of, of one. Um, and as Jeremy said, there were other things that, that um, he was addicted to. You know, he would, he would um, shop a lot. He would um, be on the computer a lot. Um, everything that he did in his normal life became excessive. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then it would ultimately um, lead to a binge drinking and, and um, he would end up back in, in rehab. Right. So, Carol, I'm going to come back to your Al-Anon experience in a few minutes, but Lynn, how did it show up in, in, and you kind of have a really different perspective on this, too, because of your own story, but, you know, how did um, the addiction show up in your relationship, and what challenges did it create? Well, I lost my father. He died when I was 10, and then my mother started to drink, so um, I felt like I was abandoned by both of them when I was 10, and I guess I looked for love in all the wrong places, and I wound up marrying a drug addict and alcoholic, and, you know, I used to drink too, and we would fight and scream and holler and just have these horrible, horrible um, fights, and there was a lot of denial, you know, Um, and I just remember, like, holidays and special events were just horrible. They would just go on forever, and and he would never, like, want to stop or come home. And I used to think that I could stay up all night and, like, save him and help him. And, you know, there was a lot of excuses. There was a lot of manipulation. And when I would get really angry and fed up with his behavior, he would, like, bring me flowers and tell me all these wonderful things, and he would promise to do better, and I would forgive him, and then I would go back and that went on for eight years, you know, and I even got sober during that time. I've been sober for 25 years, but, um, you know, it didn't help him. Right. So it was the kind of thing, things would get bad and then he would come back and make nice and things like that. They would be okay. And then it would keep cycling through for you. Absolutely. When he was good, he was great. And when he was bad, he was hard. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Right. And, you know, Carol, I think you had shared with me, too, some of the things that happened is, you know, taking steps to try to make things okay sometimes, you know, at home, the things that might have been challenged, but taking steps afterwards, you realize you were doing things to make things seem okay. Yes, um, I would hide his alcoholic behavior from my son because my my son had already lost his father and I didn't want him to see my, um, or his, now stepfather in a bad light. I wanted everything to be better for him. Um, I would step in and um, make sure that um, all the bills were paid and and everything looked good from the outside. Um, but inside, you know, I was struggling with with his behaviors and and my erratic behavior as well. 
Right. So, Jeremy, what are some of the typical things that you see in couples? You know, what are some of the, like, you know, top struggles that couples have, you know, maybe by the time they come to you or you see somebody who's in a couple, but what are, you know, how's this going to manifest and make life difficult for a couple? Sorry, are you asking me that? Yes, yeah, that's to you, Jeremy. Oh. Yep. Um, well, um, I mean, just something that, that we can already pick up in Lynn and Carol's story is that the partner becomes addicted almost to um, their alcoholic or their addict, just like the addict or alcoholic becomes addicted uh, to the substance. Um, and whether someone's addicted to drugs or alcohol or food or sex um, or another person, you know, their, their partner or their spouse, it's, that's the tip of the iceberg. And that's the part that we see. What is someone addicted to, um, whether it's shopping or gambling or another person, and nine-tenths of the iceberg is is under the water, and that is the stuff that people need to get curious about and to learn about. So while someone might be drinking, um, and it just seems like the problem is a drinking problem, really there's nine-tenths under the water, and that could be self-esteem. It could be a psychiatric illness. It could be an anxiety disorder or depression. It could be that someone just doesn't know how to get what they want and what they need from other people in their lives. And um, so invariably, if and when the the substance or the addiction stops and someone's able to be abstinent, um, then both both people in in a couple or in a marriage or partnership need to figure out what's what's under the water, what's the nine tenths of that stuff, and and begin to to work on that. Right. So another, you know, another, another go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. What were you gonna add? Oh well just a, another sort of observation that is typically that you hear and Lynn and Carol can attest more more to this is um is the three C's uh of Alanana. I didn't cause the problem, I can't cure the problem, I can't control the problem. And a lot of times um, partners believe that it's a reflection on them. You know, if I only loved him more um, or loved her more, that, you know, then she'd stop drinking, he'd stop drinking. And um, and part of Al-Anon and what's so wonderful is, but also sometimes shocking and and difficult is the recognition that... um, the partner is in recovery themselves, whether someone gets clean or sober. And even if someone gets sober, um, that the, the non-drinking partner um, has to do a lot of work and has to recognize his or her role in the codependent relationship um, and, and stop blaming um, his or herself and, and stop believing that um, they can um, necessarily do anything about their loved one's recovery. Right, and you said this piece about, you know, that the partner themselves on the other side is in recovery and really in recovery from this codependency and this enabling because that becomes a pattern in this relationship oftentimes, and so that's their own recovery process and really what Al-Anon is, you know, there to help them do. Sure. So, Lynn, you know, I want to ask you, you know, you, when we spoke the other day, gave me this very beautiful explanation if you were describing to callers who really don't know anything about what Al-Anon is, is what is Al-Anon? Well, Al-Anon's a program where we share our experience, strength, and hope with other people. And what I love about it is no one tells you what to do because I'm pretty much of a hardhead and, 
you know, people tried to tell me for years to get out of that marriage and, you know, I had to do it when I was ready. But in Al-Anon, nobody tells you what to do. They just share their experience, strength, and hope. And, you know, as you keep coming around, there's 12 steps. You know, like like Jeremy said, the three C's was something I learned real early. I did not cause it. For me now, my, my qualifier is my daughter. So as a mother, I thought everything was my fault. I thought it was just to fix things. And wait, Eleanor, wait, wait, Lynn, what's a qualifier for for the people listening in? What does it mean to what's a qualifier? Oh, sorry. A qualifier is the person that brought you to Al Anon. Now I had gone to Al Anon years ago when I was married to my ex, but I didn't stick with it until my daughter became an addict. Um and the last six years, my qualifier, that's what we call her, has been my daughter, because I have I've been divorced for twenty years. And um my daughter. So, so going to the program, I learned that I didn't cause it. I didn't, con- I didn't, I can't control it and I cannot cure it. And then there's the 12 steps and they really, um, you know, walk you through the process. First of all, you learn that you're powerless and then you have slogans that are just really, um, really simple things like live and let live. And it's none of my business. Like I didn't know it was none of my business. And, you know, I used to think I could fix everything and I, w- I had the power and this is, you know, you learn the serenity prayer and the steps and the slogans. And, and it's a lifetime process. Spiritual growth is a lifetime process. So I'm just so grateful to this program because it can help me with everything in my life, like not just my marriage or my daughter, but it helped me with my job. It helped me, you know, I had a really bad week last week. It helped me with that. So, it is, so Al-Anon is, can be applied to every part of your life. So it really is a program that helps to, you know, take whatever pieces of ourselves, you know, what that had become either whether been codependent or enabling or, you know, filled with that shame and filled with that guilt and really helping to shift into a place of personal strength, personal understanding, awareness and strength so that you can navigate more, you know, confidently through life and also, as you said, with more serenity in life about what it is you can control, what it is you can't control and maybe about how to make choices that feel healthy for you. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about, you know, how do you know if it's time to consider leaving? Because a number of our callers and people who will listen to this will be struggling. You know, I, I love this person and there's this struggle or I've been suffering or not, I'm afraid to try to leave because, you know, what if they relapse? What if they harm themselves? Or I'm afraid to leave because they might be vindictive or they might be angry. So, you know, people have fears, any number of those kinds of fears that would arise as they would even, con- as they're considering leaving somebody. So should I do it? What will happen if I do? What will happen to them? What will happen to me? So, I know that your stories are really different, and then, Jeremy, maybe you can add some, but, you know, Lynn, share with us your story, because, in fact, you weren't even the one who initiated the divorce, so what was your story? No, I wasn't. I mean, I'm sorry, no, Carol, 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 (laughs) sorry. Carol, you were the one who didn't initiate it, sorry, go ahead. Right. Um, Well, uh, my husband and I were were in counseling, um, and it was his decision to, to actually separate, and we continued to um, to go to our own programs and um, couples counseling. But I think because of the strength that I got from Al-Anon, we were at one of our sessions with our couples counselor, and it was just glaring to me. I, you know, at the time, I thought, I guess I thought because we were both in a program 
that we both were aware of of not being able to be in control of things and and being powerless, as Lynn said, um, that we would be able to work through it. When when we when I was at that last session, I heard my husband speaking, and I realized that he really wasn't going to change. And it was actually me at that point that initiated the, the divorce proceedings because um, I guess in the back of my mind, I was still thinking, oh, things will change, things will change. And really the only thing that did change was me. And and that was because of the strength that I got from Al-Anon. And um, it just as a program that seeps in. I mean, for years I did go to Al-Anon thinking, well, maybe this will start to work, but I would sit in the back of the rooms and listen to people's stories and not be a participant. But I guess I did get something out of it because, again, that also was a... was um, I was at a meeting one day and I finally did share, and that was the big change, that mm-hmm. when I could also start to share my story... Um, that helped me to become a stronger person and be able to make decisions that were good for me, not just good for my spouse. And um, it's it's a process. It takes time. And um, little by little, I changed. I became a stronger person. And even though I'm divorced now, I still use the program because, as Lynn said, you can use this program in every walk of your life. Right. So, Lynn, your story is a little bit different than Carol's. How did you know that it was time? Well, I left my ex-husband several times, and I just kept going back. You know, I thought I thought that I needed him, and I thought that he was the strong one. And, um, you know, we had three children, and, and it's funny, this, before the third child, I really made the decision to leave him for good, and he was out. He had moved out, and I realized I was pregnant. Mm. So he came back, and we had our third daughter. So, um, you know, it just took, like I said, I'm a hardhead. It took me a long time. There was a lot of craziness. There was a lot of insanity. You know, there was verbal abuse. There was horrible, horrible fights, like I said. And, um, you know, I finally, what finally made me leave him for good was an emergency situation. I had to call the police, and... um I had to make an emergency move out of my house the next day. And even though I did that, and even though I had a restraining order against him, I still continued to see him for probably like a year. It was, it was, you know, I guess I, I, I guess I had to like wean myself away from him. It was very hard because I really, really loved him. He was, like I said, when he was good, he's an amazing man. I'm still friends with him to this day. Um, he's a good man when he's sober. You know, you'll hear this all the time. They're great when they're sober, and when he's, you know, when he's not, he's a mess. So it really took me a long time. Yeah. And, you know, we'll get to a little bit, but, you know, that whole thing that being a process, taking time, and Al-Anon sort of being there to support, like, you weren't going to Al-Anon actively for you, but, you know, Carol was going to Al-Anon, but that it takes time and everybody in their own time of finding their path. And, you know, Jeremy... As you talk with people, what are the factors for people as they're trying to decide? I mean, I think Lynn and Carol probably touched on some of them, but what are the factors that come up with people as they're trying to decide whether or not um, this is the next step for them? Well, from the addict's perspective, there's a saying that a lot of people find helpful. We're not responsible for falling down, but we're responsible for getting back up. And 
that applies to the disease model of addiction, that you shouldn't have shame in the fact that you have the genetic predisposition towards alcoholism or addiction. Um, if there's a hole in front of you, you fall in it. It's not your fault because shame can keep people in their addiction. Shame can keep people in a really unhealthy relationship with an addict or alcoholic as well. But once you're in the hole and you know that you're in the hole, it is our responsibility to get back up. So in Lynn and Carol's story, you can kind of hear the point at which they recognized that they were in this hole, really recognized it and began to get back up and to ask for help and to reach up and grab a hand and be pulled out of the hole. And that's the support of Al-Anon and that's therapy and that's talking about your problem with your friends and your family and whomever will listen and that sort of thing. Um, and, and it's a recognition that you're just not getting your needs and your wants met and this relationship is not working out and that that he's not going to change. Um, you know, and then, of course, I think it bears mention of the safety issues, obviously safety first and foremost. Um, the, the three A's, reasons to leave a partner, are addiction, abuse, and affairs. And in the case of either of those, if, if there's a little abuse, you know, someone pushes you once, but then he goes and he gets therapy and he's in a group with other men who have done that and he never, it never happens again and he works on himself, then, okay, there's abuse that you can get over. But if it's ongoing abuse, if it's repetitive abuse, or if it's combined with affairs and addiction um, in, in the right combination, then, then it's too much and someone has to leave. And, and the same applies to addiction, too. You want to give them a chance if, if they get help. Uh, they go to rehab, they go to AA, they're abstinent, they're working on themselves, and maybe this is a relationship that's, that's salvageable. In fact, the majority of people eventually do recover, well, the overwhelming majority, uh, but, but not necessarily in the first year or two. And then it's the minority that's going to recover in a year or two out. But, it, but in the long run, most people do recover. Um, but there's a point at which it's uh, hurting individual too much to stay in a relationship and it's hurting the, the family and when kids are involved it hurts them more than um, if you were to end the relationship and I think you said something there that I really want to highlight and bring to the surface you know even more powerfully for people in that how do you know is that part of that is if when I realize it's not me as the partner who can change something here but is my partner ready and willing to take some action to take response to take responsibility for this disease for what they're really struggling with with the disease that they have and as we heard from both Carol and Lynn like we can keep cycling back through I'll try to do this I'll make it better this way or if only I did this or but he's really nice then or things like that it, the, the mirror is still on oneself and not that we don't look at our own self-awareness. This is sort of separate from that. But if we keep trying to think that the problem will be get better because as the partner, we do something differently, that's where we keep landing back in the cycle, that things can change when our partner decide, recognizes the disease that they have and has a willingness to take responsibility for it. But without that responsibility, there's no, we, can't, we shouldn't really expect that anything is going to change. 
Right, and our job is to be as crystal clear once we know how we feel about the situation and what we're willing to accept, to set limits and boundaries, and to communicate really clearly that, that this is what we need in order to make this relationship work. Otherwise, we need to start mediation or coaching and discussing other possibilities. Right. So I'm watching the clock, so I want to move through a few more things here because I want to make sure we cover a couple more topics. But in terms of the actual divorce process itself, and I think, Carolyn, both of you actually started in mediation and, um, you know, had certain successes or a certain amount that was covered in mediation, ultimately then, you know, completed your divorces in other ways. But um, what was the, how did um, the traits that your partner had affect your actual divorce process? And, you know, what about mediation worked? What about it, you know, was helpful to have attorneys involved with? So some of those kind of nuts and bolts for some people just from your experiences. So, um, Lynn, let me start with you and then we'll go to Carol. Well, we tried, you know, we tried a lot of things. We tried counseling and we tried, we tried mediation. You know, we tried, um, sometimes he would be reasonable and sometimes he was truly frightening. You know, I remember one time the lawyer had to let me go down the freight elevator because um, he was that scary, you mm. know. So there were times when, um, you know, the sickness would come out. There were times when I thought he was reasonable, and there were times when he was totally unreasonable and in, even to the point of being scary. Mm. And, Carol, what was your experience? Well, I went into mediation thinking that um, it was going to be a process that would help both of us come come together in the middle. And because of my husband's addiction, um, he really was not able to um, to bend at all. He still wanted everything his way. So um, after a few sessions with uh, mediation, again, I came to the realization that um, I need to protect myself. I need to look out for my own best interests. And again, Going back to Al-Anon, I got the strength to really concentrate on, on my own best interests through that program, and, um, and I chose to um, get a lawyer and proceed um, that way. And um, that way I knew that I had a lawyer on my side looking out for my best interests. Now, I know that I also, I had been working with a client once who, you know, was um, on the other side of a spouse who, you know, had um, challenges with alcohol, addiction to alcohol as well. And they, you know, went pretty significantly through the mediation process with very certain kinds of supports and things like that. Certainly, you know, one partner having a coach um, available and able to be very direct. I guess there was, in this case, some level of awareness. So, you know, Jeremy, what do you think are the factors that might determine whether a couple who's in this situation might be able to complete a divorce through something like mediation where they do both need to come to the table and negotiate? And, you know, what are some of the factors that, you know, would lead them not to be able to do that? So what are, what are some possible, um, what are the things that impact an outcome like that? And I know that I'm asking you a very big question you don't have all the answers to, but just from, you know, the experience that you've had, when, when could somebody who has an addiction come to the table and possibly mediate successfully and when might they not be able to? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a, it's a tough question. Um, I, and I think it, it depends on sort of as many different people as there are and partners related to them. Um, but I think 
first, um, are they abstinent? Are they clean? And they, are they working a program, um, a program of recovery? Because if they're not, um, then it's going to be way more complicated. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, I think mediation is the first um, choice, and, and that's worth trying. And it's the same with sort of treatment that um, you maybe start out with um, individual treatment. If that doesn't work, you add a couple times a week. You add group. You add meetings. You add daily meetings. Um, so mediation makes sense as a first um, choice, but if they're not willing to compromise and it's almost as if each partner needs to feel like they're compromising or conceding more than the other, and if they're both at least feeling that they're both compromising more than the other, then, then maybe there is some, there's some hope. Um, and I think if both individuals are in treatment, and, and there's therapists and support involved, it, it's going to uh, make things a lot easier because that's going to be um, reinforced. Um, having some ability to be amicable and still talk and when children and kids are involved, um, keeping them central and not doing anything to alienate the other partner from the kids, even the addict, if they're still using, not alienating um, them from the children. Jeremy, I think that was really helpful. And one of the things, you know, I, it may have sounded like I was posing the question to look for, you know, a general statement, but really the fact that communicating the message is every circumstance is unique. So, you know, people listening to this call, you know, really taking away, it's not that you can or you can't. There's no, you know, pat answers for every situation. And if there, you know, somebody has an addiction, you absolutely can't this or you absolutely must that. They're really looking at every situation as it's independent and is its own entity. And, you know, what's possible here? You know, mediation is, as you said, you know, better for kids typically, keep less contentious. There's a lot of advantages to it, and it has to work in the situation. Are there right, the right supports to make that happen? And sometimes there are and sometimes there aren't. So to really make an honest choice and an honest determination, but also to put forth an effort to really ask those questions knowing that there can be trade-offs in going in different directions. So I thought, that, you know, that was really valuable in the way that you share that. Um, in the last few minutes that we have here, before I ask people for kind of their final contributions, I want to go back um, to Al-Anon because I really do want one of the takeaways of this call to be for people to consider and to understand Al-Anon and to consider this as a support because it has been so powerful. And I want to ask Carol and Lynn to share a little bit more about um, the, their experience. And so, Carol, when you first went to Al-Anon, what did you think you were going to get from this group? You know, what, what did, and then what did you discover was really true? Well, I found out about Al-Anon through um, my ex's sponsor. So I went into the meeting thinking they were going to give me tips on how to get him to stop drinking. And I know that that is pretty typical of many people that walk into the rooms. Um, and that's really not what it's about at all. It's really about um, discovering yourself and um, strengthening, getting strength through the support system of Al-Anon and learning about yourself so that you can make sound decisions for yourself and for your own safety and your own peace of mind. And um, and you, you get that, as Lynn said before, through listening to other people's stories and taking it in and figuring out what's right for you, not by having someone tell you, you need to do this, you need to do that. Right. 
And Carol, you know, it's so, what you said is just so important in the sense that um, no matter what the issue is, we only have control over ourselves, right? We can only learn to make the choices and decisions and navigate ourselves because there's so many things. Well, if my partner would just do this, if my spouse would just do that, if I could get them to do this, if I could get them to do that, you know, it's something we hear about all kinds of things. If I could get them to clean up the house, I could get them to, you know, put this away. If I could get them to stop drinking, if I could get them to whatever and give me the magic, you know, the magic bean that shows me how to do that or the fortune, you know, <laughs> that can show me how to achieve that. You know, and what you're really describing, and I know in my coaching work, it's very, and I'm sure in Jeremy's work too, is that it's not about what we can get the other person to do because we really can't. The only person we really can affect is ourselves. okay with those behaviors that we don't like, too. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have to change completely and discount those behaviors. We can learn to accept other people's behaviors. Right. So, Lynn, you resisted going to Al-Anon. So, at the very beginning, what was your thought process, and what did you learn as a result of, you know, eventually engaging? But initially, you were resistant. You did not want to go. So, tell us about that resistance, because I'm sure people listening feel that way, too. Absolutely. I I tried some programs, you know, many years ago. I tried a lot of programs, and um, I never stuck with one. And when I was told to go to Al-Anon with my daughter six years ago, I didn't understand why I was the one that had to go when it was her that was sick. You know, I didn't know that I was sick. And you hear this again and again. We're all, like, angry to be there. We're, we're all angry when we get there. And we think that we're going to just, like, learn something and then graduate, and everybody laughs in Al-Anon because that's not what happens. I didn't realize that alcoholism was a family disease. I didn't realize that I was sick, too. You know, I was really busy. I had four kids, and, you know, my oldest daughter is my problem. And, you know, I have four kids. I had her daughter, so I had a granddaughter here, too. I had a full-time job and a life, you know, and I was angry. And they told me to keep coming back, and gradually the tools and slogans started sinking in. And I realized that I'm powerless over everyone but myself, and I learned to put the focus on myself. And when I learned, like, one day at a time and first things first and it's none of my business and... I learned one thing I really learned was compassion that I could have compassion for them, but not enable them and not tolerate like behavior that I shouldn't be tolerating. And I learned that they have their own higher power in their own program. And for me, it took me a long time to get over my fear of abandonment. I went to a lot of counseling and a lot of programs and, um, you know, I really thought I needed a man. And, and today I'm in a really great marriage and I'm crazy over my husband. Um, we're both sober and, um, but through all the hard, hard times I've had, I learned that I'm the strong one. Like, I didn't know that. You know, when I had to put my daughter out, my husband would take her back tomorrow, and she's not even his child. She's 30 years old. And, you know, I know that if my husband leaves me tomorrow, and I, I would be heartbroken, but I would be fine. And I didn't know that before. So mm-hmm. when you go through this, you learn that you have a strength in you that you just didn't know was there. That is so powerful. Thank you so much. I feel like you just gave us a huge gift in sharing that with us because I know so many people feel that way, just don't know how they would make it on the other side. And, you know, you traverse that with having three kids and leaving and then finding your way. So we're down to the last few minutes. So I want to ask each of you, and literally I'm going to keep you each to, you know, about 40 seconds to a minute, but one last thing that you would like to share with callers or listeners, so whether it be a resource or you know, a tip or something like that, but, you know, something that 
people can take with them. So, Lynn, um, what would you like to share? What's something, a resource or something you would like to leave callers with? Well, what helped me when I was when I left my husband? Like I said, I had three. My children were were uh, one, three, and nine, so it was really hard. And I tried to get involved. I got involved with Parents Without Partners, and that was like other parents that you know, single parents. And so you did things with your children. So I tried to keep busy. I had great family and friends support, but um, but I think that going to um, Parents Without Partners helped me too to get through this. Great. And Carol, what is something you would like to leave people with today? Um, I would say that, yes, you, you, what you learn about yourself is to, to use your strengths and, and um, don't sit around and wait for things to happen. You, you're the one that makes the things happen. Um, I, I, felt like I was starting to get addicted to Al-Anon. I was attending so many meetings that that's all I was doing. So I got myself a job that I love and I'm passionate about that now. So it's really keeping busy and not just bemoaning a situation that you really had no control over. Right. But I love what you said, like, don't wait for things to happen. Like, we can sit and wait for things to change, wait for things to happen, wait for somebody to do something. And ultimately, it's that recognition and realization that it's we who have the capacity. So, Jeremy, what would you like to leave people with? Well, I think um, Lynn talked about having compassion for others, but you could also sense a great deal of learned self-compassion. And that's sort of a newer way of thinking about compassion. Um, addiction is a selfish disease, but you also hear people in recovery from addiction and in Al-Anon talk about how recovery is a selfish program, and it's selfish in a good way, um, in a way that we learn who we are and what we want, what we need, what makes us tick. And so addiction and recovery from others' addictions is, is less about what you take out. It's not so much about abstinence or leaving in a relationship, or, but it's about what we put into our lives, the, the, the people, um, the hobbies, the, the fun, um, and, and the camaraderie that we can um, get in community um, that I think uh, helps us live most happily. Right. And I think what I would like to leave people with today is this sense of... If wherever you are, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, if you're feeling unsure, is that you take, take a next step. Basically, I mean, it's just a next step and reach out for support. There's so much support of people here to help you. So, you know, we, you don't have to make major changes in your life. It's just one next step. And so if that next step is talking to Jeremy, Jeremy Frank, phd.com is his website. Um, if it's talking to a coach to even contemplate things, you can look me up at divorceessentials.net and you'll get a follow-up email from me. If you want to think about mediation and learn more about it, myhealthydivorce.com. And certainly we encourage people to look up your local chapter of Al-Anon, which you can find easily by searching for Al-Anon on the web and then going to the box where you can search for your local chapter. So we encourage you if you're struggling or suffering, just not to, not to stay with it in yourself, but to really reach out for support because people have walked this path before you and there really is great support out there.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Healthy Divorce Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can find me, Sharon Pastore, or my partner, Chris Pastore, at MyHealthyDivorce.com. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, you can have a healthy divorce. It's how you divorce that matters.